continuing in a series on Sunday, we're trying to focus in on uh, one particular aspect or, or part of the character of who Jesus is, and particularly um, how he's described in the book of Luke, sort of Luke's understanding of Jesus. And so we're painting some pictures and telling stories about that. We've talked about the first week, we kind of talked about Jesus, the Redeemer, the one that came to, to buy us and to set us free. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus, the teacher. Um, we talked last week. We talked about Jesus, the prophet slash judge, kind of thing. That's a little intense, right? That kind of thing. But today, we're going to talk about Jesus, uh, the missionary, for lack of a better term. Uh, it's one of my favorite uh, pieces that Luke kind of shines a light on. The one who came after us and came to rescue us. It's a major theme in the book of Luke. If you haven't already noticed it, you'll, you'll notice it all over the place in your readings this week. Um, Jesus, for instance, in his purpose statement in Luke 19, 10, says this. This is his purpose. He says, For the Son of Man even did not come, or came to seek and to save the lost. It's sort of missionary language. I've come to seek and to save those who are outside of the kingdom of God. I've come to rescue those who are stuck in sin. I've come to help people who are far from God come home to a father who loves them. That's why I have come, Jesus says. And it makes sense to me that Luke, especially, this would be a huge theme in the book of Luke, right? Why? Because if you, if you remember week one, we talked about Luke is the only writer of a gospel, of the story about Jesus. He's also the only known New Testament writer that wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile, a Gentile like us, right? So he, but in that day and age, he was sort of an outsider uh, to God. He was kind of excluded from worship. He was sort of, he, he had to stay at a distance from God. He wasn't allowed. He was kind of considered a second-class citizen, and yet... Uh, as we'll see today, he comes to the realization, and it's a, a foundational belief of his, it's a foundational teaching of Jesus, that even though he was an outsider, even though he remembers what it was like to be far from God, even though he remembers what it's like to be stuck in sin and to feel hopeless and to feel whatever uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, kind of the, the core for Luke is, he, he realizes that Jesus came to rescue. Although he used to be an outsider, he has now been brought back home to God because this missionary named Jesus has come for him, right? He has come to, to rescue and help him get connected back up with God and to come home. So it's a, it's a cool theme. It's, it's no wonder that it was a big deal um, for Luke. It's a big deal for me, right? I mean, I can remember too. I, I remember what it was like to be lost. I remember what it's like to be far from God. I remember uh, that journey myself and I remember as well the joy and the life and the freedom that came when suddenly I heard and realized for the first time that Jesus came for me, right? He came to, 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 to transform me and to save me and to make me new. It's a huge deal uh, for Luke. It's a huge deal for us. And so that's kind of what I focus in on today. Today I, I want us to walk through a, a series of three stories that are found in Luke 15, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Uh, we'll walk through two of them pretty quickly. I'm going to read through all of them. It's a little lengthy, so stick with me. One of them we'll spend a little bit extra time on. But all three of these stories have the same point. It's about Jesus' heart and his mission and his desire to basically seek and to save those that have lost their way. So let's look at Luke 15 together. Uh, starting with verse 1, it says this. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners, quote, quote, we're all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the teachers of the law muttered to themselves, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
And so then Jesus told them this parable, right? So this is inter it's an interesting setup to the whole story. I remember um, shortly after uh, Tina and I moved to Wisconsin as missionaries to kind of plant a new church there, I can remember one of the ways that I, I tried to connect with people um, uh, in the community was by uh, joining the fire department. And so uh, it was a volunteer kind of fire department. You got a cool light to go on the front of your car. They took you through the training. Anytime there was a uh, there was a fire or something, they'd call you. You could scream through town, jump on a fire truck, go and, and do the deal. It was fun, but it's also a lot of the insiders of the town, kind of the core guys of the town, were part of the fire department. And so it was a way to get to know them and uh, to kind of build some relationship with them. But I, I remember, I think it was maybe the first year that I did that, something like that. I think the fire department had their 125th anniversary or something like that. They had a huge banquet. Anybody that had ever been a firefighter that was a current firefighter or, a, or past or present EMT and all their families gathered together in this huge banquet to sort of celebrate. Um, they, they pulled out all the fire trucks and everything and like the old timers could kind of walk through and see the new equipment. It was pretty cool, pretty fun. Uh, and, and that kind of thing. I remember because I was a pastor, I kind of became the unofficial chaplain of the uh, firefighters. And so when they had a banquet or something, like Ross, would you, you know, would you get up and pray before we have our meal? I thought, sure. And so I'm a pastor. I can do that, right? Kind of thing. So I got up and I can remember uh, praying. So let's pray. And, and I just pray for them. I thank God for them. Like I thank God for these men and women who went into harm's way. I mean, for the sake of the community. I, uh, I prayed um, God's blessing and protection on him. I prayed that God would open their eyes to himself and draw them near. But I, 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 just, I just kind of that kind of a prayer. It's that kind of a heart, uh, you know, that we thank God for food and whatever. And we said, in Jesus' name, amen. Went on, kind of had a good time that evening. Went to, uh, got to hang out with a bunch of them. And uh, later on that night, I saw a, a guy that was a well-known sort of Christian um, in that community, a really religious sort of figure in that community. And uh, he came up and he said, nice prayer. He said, what you should have said, what you should have prayed, and what you should have told them is that they're all a bunch of alcoholics and they're all going to hell. That's what he said. I was rocked back. He was dead serious, by the way. He was dead serious. He's like, that's what, that's what you should have told them. And I was sort of like, I was angry at first. I was, I was kind of mad and, and, uh, and kind of rocked back a little bit. But I, I don't know if you've experienced this much, but that's actually some people's theology, right? That's what some people believe of how you should treat and how, and it's sort of a reflective or a representation of how God feels about lost people, right? That he hates them. He despises them. They are pond scum. They are down here. We are the religious elite, and we're up here, and everybody else is down there. And that's, and they're kind of, I mean, they're, they're understanding their pictures. That's how God feels about people that are far from God. So this is exactly what's happening in the story that we're, we're reading from Jesus, right? There's, this there's these religious leaders that are looking at Jesus who's hanging out with people that are far from God. And you know how people far from God live? They live like people that are far from God, right? That's, that's how they live. They're living consistently, right? They're living consistently with who they are. Jesus is loving them and reaching out to them and pointing them back home to the Father. He's, he's living out his mission and his role as a missionary. And the religious leaders of that day are up on their high horses, looking down their noses and calling names. And like, how, how could this Jesus, where does he get off? How could he hang out with those kind of people? And so Jesus turns and says, I want to tell you a few stories. I've got three stories I want to tell you. And so he starts out, verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. This parable is where he starts. 
knows the parable of the lost sheep. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, right? Livestock in that day was a big deal, very valuable, represented the family assets, really, that was passed from one generation to the next. Very important, represents pretty much all they had. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, which what a great image is that. You get a picture of a smiling Jesus with a, with a lamb or a sheep over his shoulders. He joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and he calls all of his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Story number one. Story number two. It's called the parable of the lost coin. He goes on. He says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins. Now, there's some uh, variation on what this is. Some have thought this might represent sort of her savings. This might represent sort of, it was common that day to have sort of a, a wedding gift or a wedding dowry to be of, seven, or of 10 uh, silver coins. So maybe it's something like that, which is, would have not just intrinsic value, but some emotional value too. Sort of like a wedding ring, right? It would be a, a big deal kind of thing. 10, 10 silver coins, but something like that of great value, right? So suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over just one person, one sinner who repents. You see the pattern developing here? He tells one more story. Third story, it's this, the parable of the lost son, so it's a little longer, but stick with me. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Give me my inheritance. And so he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pots that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Imagine that being envious of pig food, right? How are things going for him at this point? Not good. Let's go on. Verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired slaves or servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion for him. He, so he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found, and so they began to celebrate. But that's not the end of the story. Keep listening. Meanwhile, the older son in the field was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dance and he heard a party going on. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, it says, and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you, and you never disobeyed, and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father says, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother, of course, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. All right, time for a little audience participation. When it comes to stories like this in the Bible, especially when they come in multiples, right, in, in, in like stories of two or three or four or whatever, stories in a row that are rapid fire, typically the way you want to look, what you want to look for is you want to look for what's similar, what's the same in these stories, and you want to look for what's different in these stories, because if you find either the similarities or differences, and sometimes both, you get real close to the heart or the purpose of the story, right? Jesus here is, is teaching these stories, and he has one main point, and it's found in the similarities. So why don't you take just a minute, again, it's time for some audience participation. So what do you hear in these stories that you think is the same in each of the three stories? There's a celebration that happens, right, when when, uh, when the lost thing is found, or the lost person, the lost whatever, is found. Yeah, what else? I, I, I think there's at least four on my, on my account. Don't, don't put them up yet, though. <laughs> what else? Yes, yeah, so there was, uh, I'll put it this way. Um, Whatever was lost was so valuable that it warranted a full-on search, right? A full search. In each one of the stories, people were frantically looking and searching for that thing that had been lost. What else? There was something that was lost, right? That's sort of the the uh, the, the first one that's like, Duh. Anything else? I kind of included this in the last one, but I think the other piece that maybe I'll highlight again is just, and you can pop them up now, but I think the other thing is, whatever was lost had great value to the elder, right? Whatever was lost had great value. So there was something that was lost, that something had great value, it warranted a search, and when the, the lost thing was found, there was a full-on celebration, there was joy. In each of these stories, something wound up missing, the sheep wound up missing, a coin ended up missing, and a son went missing. Whatever it was really mattered to somebody. The lost sheep really mattered to the shepherd, right? The lost coin mattered uh, to the woman who it was one of her ten. And the wayward son undoubtedly mattered to the father. These things mattered so much that it warranted an all-out search until it was found. And when it was found, again, a party was thrown to celebrate its return. So what's the point? Jesus is saying, that is the father's heart. And, and Jesus is saying, that's my heart. He says, I love and greatly value each and every person, no matter how far they've strayed from home. I mean, could it be that Jesus is saying that he is that loving towards these irreligious, 
immoral and profane individuals? Yes, right? He, he was saying that. He's like, I love lost people. I love people who are far from me. I came back to you. In fact, he would say, I came for them, right? I love people who are struggling under the weight of life, who are overwhelmed, who are, who are maybe weighed down by sin or addiction or whatever else. I came for them. He's like, are you kidding me? The Father loves them. I love them so much that I would search and search and search and search until I find them. And when they are found, there's a cosmic party happening in heaven. Jesus is saying, this is the heart of God. This is not the God who looks down his nose, who calls names, who shakes the finger, who says whatever. He's saying to the religious people, and he's saying to everybody in his hearing, that is not the heart of God. God is crazy about their of great value in the eyes of God. People matter to God. They need to matter to us. Jesus goes after He goes after lost people. Lost people like me. Lost people like you. He loves them so much that he would reach across the cosmos, right, to, to come after us as a missionary. He would come and build relationships. He would come and learn our language, so to speak, share the good news that God loved people like them, people like us. He loved them so much that he would be willing to martyr himself on our behalf, that he would be willing to give his life on our behalf so that we, so that outsiders could become insiders, so that people that are far from God could come home. Is that not good news? It's amazing news. He's saying, you matter to me that much. And lost people need to matter to us that much as well. You know, a couple months ago, I saw the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Anybody seen the movie? I gotta say, it's a great movie. Oh my gosh, I own it now. <laughs> it just came out, and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm getting that. It's based though, on a true story about a young man who enlisted in World War II but uh, felt as though he, uh, God had told him that he wasn't to touch a weapon of any kind. But he enlisted in the army nonetheless. Uh, his name was Desmond Doss. Desmond was a Christ follower, uh, a godly man, uh, and he enlisted as a medic. And there's a bunch of uh, scenes in here that are, that are amazing and fantastic. Uh, he ends up actually uh, having to overcome and sort of battle through to even become a medic in the first place. He was beaten within an inch of his life by his own platoon members uh, who thought he was a coward and were vehemently against him not having a gun, you know, thinking that it's going to put them in harm's way and call him all kinds of names. Unbelievable kind of story. And yet he keeps pushing forward. He keeps at it. He keeps trying to pursue what he, feel like, what he felt like God had asked him to do. And so finally he becomes a full-fledged medic, goes with his unit um, to a battle uh, their first battle in uh, World War II, it's on the, the island of Okinawa, and uh, the soldiers have to climb up, it's called Hacksaw Ridge, right, they have to climb up this maybe two or three hundred foot cliff, like just a straight drop, a sheer cliff, they've got a rope, uh, you know, what do you call those things, a net or whatever, those kind of things that you, you crawl up, um, is their only way off. The, the, the uh, former unit that had been up there had been pushed off four times by the enemy, so the, the, 
what they had to do is their whole unit had to climb up um, and try and advance on, on uh, an enemy that was dug in and waiting for them. Right, just sitting there waiting, guns trained, right? Cannons aimed, just waiting for them. And uh, it's, I mean, you can imagine, it's horrible, right? I mean, there's carnage everywhere. There's, uh, their, their uh, unit takes heavy, heavy casualties, so much so that they get pushed back off the edge and all of them retreat. Uh, and they leave uh, hundreds of wounded and dead up on top of the ridge. Everybody left except Desmond Doss. He was, he was there for a reason. And as a medic, he decided, and as nighttime was coming on, he decided he would stay and rescue as many as he could. And so the, there's a huge section of the movie, and this is, this is him getting the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor for this, by the way, where he, uh, where he was crawling you know, again in the dark, um, in the enemy territory, snatching wounded uh, soldiers, bringing them back to the cliff and lowering them down on a rope down this cliff to freedom and to uh, people that were waiting to take him. He rescued 75 men that night. It's an incredible story, an incredible story. And I tell you what, I, I watched this movie and I thought, this is just, I mean, this just, it so reminds me of the gospel, doesn't it? It so reminds me of Jesus, of what Jesus came to do. He came behind enemy lines to rescue those who had beaten him and would one day kill him and take his life, right? Or he would take their sin upon him. And yet he came and rescued them anyway. He came to people that have no hope, that had no way to get to freedom or to healing on their own. And he came as a missionary. He came as a medic even, right? And rescued us, picked people up and, uh, and threw them over their shoulder. This is probably the best scene in the movie for me. Is he's, so he's, every time he takes and he lowers somebody down, I mean, he just falls down. He's exhausted. His hands are bleeding from this rope. I mean, he's been shot at. He's got blood all over. I mean, it's a, he's a mess. And yet he, he turns, he, his, his eyes shift back to enemy territory and starts praying his prayer. God, help me save one more. Help me save one more. And so he goes back in to the hellfire of war, right? He rescues another one, lowers him down. Again, just, oh, totally exhausted. And turns his face back and says, God, help me rescue just one more. And I'll tell you what, friends, that is the heart of God we see in Luke 15. One more, a God that would come for one more, a God that came to rescue just one more, a God that would die in our place on the cross for one more for you and for the person that lives next to you and the person that works next to you, other people that live in your home. One more. It's an amazing picture. It's an amazing picture of the gospel. It's an amazing picture that Jesus is painting here. God, I will give my life. Just help me to save one more. I'll come and I will do a full-on search, Jesus is saying. I'll rescue those that would do me harm. And I'll put them on my back and I'll carry them from death to life. Because you matter to God that much. That's what Jesus came to do. He's like a shepherd that leaves the 91 going after the one. Right? One more. He's like the woman who lost one coin out of ten and just went on a full-out search until he found it. He's like the father of the lost son who's waiting and longing and one day 
when he sees this figure coming in the distance, runs down the road, throws his arms around, and welcomes home his son. That's God's heart towards you. That's God's heart towards me. Let me just zero in. I want to zero in just for a minute on this section of the, uh, the parable of the, the prodigal, the lost son. Let me just read this part of it again because I love this. Verse 20 says this. It says, but while he, the lost son, was still a long way off, he, he finally come to his senses. He turned back home. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said, he you know, went with his rehearsed speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, in my opinion, he said, nonsense, right, first. And then he says, quick, to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on. And put a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they begin to celebrate. Now the picture, uh, just, just picture this scene as one scholar describes it. He said this. He said, this desperate, starving boy makes the long journey back to his village, utterly crushed by his defeat, and he knows what to expect. He thinks about the moment when he gets back to the village, every step of the journey, he will most certainly face hostility, he'll face open humiliation, it'll be terrible. He'll face it not just from his father or from his father's household, but he'll face it from the village itself. The boy reaches the outskirts of the small village, and the word starts spreading from one home to another. The lost son is back. He's so skinny you can hardly recognize him. He's lost everything that belonged to his father. Now what that meant was that the money from the lands that belonged to his father had been given to Gentiles, had been given to outsiders. Now again, in that day and age, that was a huge deal. Land was the most precious thing that the Israelites had practically. In fact, there was even a ceremony that existed. If you lost property, if you lost, lost either a great deal of money or a great deal of land, there was actually, a, it was given to the Gentiles, there was actually a ceremony in which you would uh, be cut off from the village and the community. It happened so often, and they had this whole thing. And, I mean, all of the people listening to Jesus would have known that. The lost son would have known that. So what was he expecting? He was expecting shame public humiliation. He was expecting to have to endure this ceremony where he would be publicly cut off from his family and from everyone else and basically shun or live as though he's dead for the rest of his life. This is what he would have been expecting coming home, and yet he's coming home. It gives you an idea of his desperation, doesn't it? Where he's, he's like, man, I, I have no place else to go. I'm starving to death, longing to eat pig slop. And so I'm heading home no matter the consequences, no matter the cost. Maybe my father will be merciful and let me live as his servant. So the son comes strolling up the street. And the people are gathering for this climactic moment in the story. And Jesus says, while he was still a far, a long way off, the father saw him. And he was filled with compassion. And then there's this great phrase. It says, and he ran to him. He ran down the road. One author says, now, amid his nobleman with flowing robes, he never ran. It was a violation of dignity to run in those days. 
Aristotle even said great men never run, right? Great men never run. They are run too. Great men run, you know, people run towards them. Great men walk slowly like CEOs and kings and popes. You never see them on TV sprinting across with their robes and stuff, right, do you? You, see, you might see other people coming to them, but not the other way around. Running is when people are, uh, running is done by children, it's done by people who are desperate or needy or too eager or afraid to care about the consequences. Jesus is saying that's the heart of God. The Father's heart is so full that he forgets everything. He forgets his own dignity. He forgets his robes. He forgets everybody else that's watching him. He forgets about their expectations, and he sees only the face of the son he loves, and he runs. And he runs down the road. He throws his arms around him, and he starts to kiss him. In fact, there's, uh, the Greek is, is really interesting. When he starts kissing him, the Greek can be translated that he just kissed him over and over and over and over again, right? And for who knows how long, there's no words. There's just tears and embrace and kisses from a father that's crazy about his son. It's a way that he's communicating wherever you've been, whatever you've done, it doesn't matter. I'm so glad you're The father doesn't want him back as a hired servant. He wants him back as his beloved son. And the same is true for you and me. God doesn't want you back as a slave, so to speak. He wants you back as his son or his daughter. He doesn't, you don't need to try and earn his forgiveness. You don't need to try and earn a spot back in his family. It's there for the taking. Now, the father wants everybody to know, the whole village to know that this son of his is fully restored. And so he has his servant bring the finest robe of the household and put it on his son. Who's, whose robe would that be, probably? The father's, right? He puts the father's robe on him. And he takes the family ring and he gives it to his son, puts it on his finger to sign of authority. And he puts shoes on a feet. Slaves don't wear shoes in that day and age. Free men wear shoes. And then the father proclaims, let's, let's get the party started, right? Let the, let the feast begin. The point of the story is that you and I have a tendency of pull in us that sometimes leads us to a distant country, doesn't it? And we say to God, either by our actions or our deeds, we say, you know what? I'm sick of living your way. I'm sick of going your way. You're, you're holding me back in life. You just leave me alone. I'm going to do my own thing in my own way. I'll be my own boss. I don't need you, God. I don't want you. And we're tempted to just go our own way. I mean, it could be all kinds of things. It could be a relationship that we just we just want it to be on our terms. We don't want God meddling in there. And so we turn and we push him away. We say, no. We run away from the Father. Sometimes I think we're just tired of, of the grind. We're tired of responsibility and everything else. And we just want to live for ourselves. And so in some ways we just turn and we just run away. I mean, sometimes there's a sin or a habit or a secret thing that that we don't want to do and we do want to do all at the same time. And at some point, we just give up. We say, you know, I'm just going to dive into this. Sometimes I think we, we're just like, I just want to live how the, the rest of the world lives. I just want to enjoy and do whatever I want to do. And so in, in one way or another, with our words, our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions, we shove God away. We say, I'm going my way. And we turn 
and we head away from the Father until we are in a distant land, right? So just that we are far from God. There is just great space that we create between us and God. And I think Jesus knows this, right? He knows that's our, our propensity. That's the, he knows that that's our tendency is to go, is to become wayward and go way together. And what he's communicating is, so when you're there and the pain level starts to rise and the hunger level starts to rise, because it always does, when we start living far from the Father, eventually the pain level starts rising. Eventually, right, the hunger inside of us starts building and getting greater and greater. The dissatisfaction is rising and rising and rising. And he says, in those moments, if you just would turn home, just, just turn home, there is a grace-filled fire waiting to run down the road to sweep you off your feet, to love you, to restore you, and to bring you to life. It's the heart of God towards you. It's the heart of God towards me. It's the heart of God towards every single person that you lock eyes with. Isn't that amazing? It's an amazing story. I love this. Let me, let me hit one more uh, part of this, and then I'll kind of wrap up for today. Because we, we talk about the similarities. These are all the similarities that we've been talking about, right? Uh, it, it's just something of great value has been lost. A full-on pursuit ensued until they were found. And when they were found, there was a great rejoicing. Right? That's, that's what's encountered. That's God's heart. But I think the other thing... The difference, I just want to highlight one difference in these stories, because I think that has um, some significance too. One of the differences that we see is the lost son story has another character besides just the lost item and the, you know, and the owner, so to speak, the lost item and the, the person. There's a second person in this story that's the older brother, and uh, it's, a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating kind of thing to think through. The older brother, sort of like the religious leaders, remember, that Jesus is telling this story to, uh, is tipped because God would forgive and restore and hang out with lost people. He wanted to look down his nose and call them names. He wanted to see his brother get what he deserved, right? He wanted to see him get judgment and not grace. He wanted to see him get backhanded, get publicly humiliated, and not, and not be welcomed home as a son. I think it's interesting. I love the, what the father says in verse 32, uh, where he says this. He says, he says basically, don't you get it? Don't you understand what has happened here? We had to celebrate. We didn't have a choice. Don't you understand the enormity of this? This, this brother of yours, this son of mine, was dead. He was on a path leading to death, right? He was, he was separated from us. He was starving to death. He was without hope. He was to you know, totally dead on that end. And he turned back home, and he has come to life again. Don't you understand what's happening? We had to celebrate because this, this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and he's found. We had to celebrate. We start understanding as we look into the story. I wish I had more time, but... We start understanding that there are actually two lost sons in this story, right? There's one that knew he was lost, and then there's the older brother that even though he lived close at home, even though he attended church every week, even though he did everything, he was still living far from home. 
You're still living far from the Father. He wasn't living in the life and the, you know, the fullness that God the Father had for him. Here's the crazy thing in the story of the prodigal son, the story of the lost son, is that whether or not we identify with the first lost son or the one who was wayward and went his own way and ended up far from home, or whether we're a little bit more like the other lost son, the older brother, we do the religious thing and we think we're maybe, we don't want to admit it, but we sometimes get under a high horse and we to act like we're up here and we're more like wanting judgment for people to get their view and fairness and all that stuff. Whether, we, whether or not we identify with one or the other, it makes no difference because in the story of the, of, of the lost son, the heart of God and really what God is calling us to is that we would become like the Father, right? That we would, that we would imitate the same way that God has loved us, the same way that God, the missionary God, Jesus, has come for us, that we would go for others. In the same way that he has poured his grace out on us, that we would pour grace out on others and help others experience that grace of God. See what I'm saying? Whether or not we identify with the older brother or the younger brother really makes no difference. There is grace available to both of us. And then God says, now, I want you to become like the Father. I want you to become like Jesus. I want you to, 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 to spend your life as well trying to seek and to save what was lost. I want you to celebrate when dead things come back to life. I want you to celebrate when people that are far from God find new life in Christ. That is a moment to rejoice. There is a cosmic party going on in heaven, and you get to be a part of it. We had to celebrate. How could you not? Don't you understand what's happening? In the same way that I, that God is filled with compassion, he said, you need to be filled with compassion. In fact, later on, we'll see, right, the Great Commission, or Acts 1-8, or Matthew 20, all these places, it's called the Great Commission, kind of the standing orders of Jesus to his church, to his followers. He tells us that our role is to go, right, go and live as missionaries in the same way that he has come for us, and he has come and rescued us. He has come and pointed us back home to the Father. In the same, in the same way, he's saying, I'm calling you to go and be my witnesses. I'm calling you to go and make disciples. I'm calling you to go and help people find their way home through Christ. Whether or not we identify with the brothers, we're called to become like the Father. Well, application for today should be pretty straightforward. Right? Some of us might be here today, and um, for whatever reason, we are feeling far from home. Maybe there is guilt and there's shame on you about your past or your present. Maybe you're feeling hopeless. Maybe you're feeling unworthy. Maybe there are voices going around in the back of your head saying you're a failure. You're not worth it. You, you will never be something more. You, are, you will never get back home. It's like you're not good enough. Who knows? There may be all kinds of things going on that are just perpetuating that downward spiral. Maybe you're stuck in that in sin, that habit, that hang-up, the hurt, whatever, maybe you just keep cycling around in there. And it, every, every time you try to get free, you find yourself just taking another spin around the hamster wheel, right? Keep going and going and going, but nothing ever changes. Whatever it is, if you, if you identify with the brother who's far from home, I want you to hear the heart of God for you today. Because there's 
Father that's crazy about you. A God that is waiting, just waiting for the slightest movement, right? The difference between this and this. The second we turn back to him, God, you want to know the road. The second we put our faith in him, he sweeps us off our feet. He wraps his arms around us. He forgives us. He makes us new. He fills us. And he leads us with that love. If you've never done that before, or even you have, but you're, you're just feeling the weight of stuff, you're just feeling far from home, I encourage you today to just, as we close in prayer, just to make you just open up your heart. That in your, in your heart, even, you just turn back to the Father and just say, Jesus, would you come and would you ask me? Would you come and would you forgive me? Would you come and bring me home? And the Bible says when we, when we put our faith in Christ like that, when we cry out to him like that, we are welcomed home. We are made new. We are. And for those of us maybe that, uh, that find ourselves um, saying, you know, I'm living, I mean, yeah, I'm not perfect. There's ups and downs and whatever else. I'm living at home with the Father. I've, I've prayed that. I've, I've tried to walk with Him. I've tried to follow Him. And I think the next step, the next question, the next thing that this story sort of demands is that we're called to become like our Father. And so my next question is, is who is it that's around you that God's asking you to love on and to, and to help point to Him and build a relationship with? Who is it that God has, has put you in their lives to help seek and to save them? Is there a friend, a neighbor, a coworker? Is there somebody that's, that's feeling far from home that needs to know there's a God that's crazy about them? And if so, friends, would you be praying for them? And would you be taking those steps this week to make that happen? One uh, final comment. We have a great opportunity. It's a great time of year to be talking about living our lives as missionaries uh, because Easter is today three weeks away. Easter is the time when even non-Christian people will go to church, right? People that, people that have no affinity to church, that don't plan on ever going to church, that kind of hate church, they'll be like, okay, I'll go. It's Easter. And especially they'll go, the, the staff would say, if you invite them. And so we've got something special planned. We also try to do something creative. Um, and so uh, you might be interested. So we're, we're printing up postcards. We've got banners and stuff. But sort of our, our harebrained, out-of-the-box idea this year is we said, what if – what if we got flower pots? And so we've, we've purchased a bunch of flower pots like this. They're little, I don't know, three, four inches uh, that have the hangers on them. We're going to um, they're gonna have an Ignite logo on the front. Uh, we're going to fill them up. We're going to actually plant flowers in there so they're bright and happy uh, flower kind of things. And then we've got these round um, invites that we're going to put like on sticks. They're getting printed up, right? And we're going to put them on sticks and kind of stick them in there with an invitation that says, Alive Again. It's our theme for Easter. You come alive again. Join us uh, this Easter. It's got details and stuff on the back as a way to invite people, as a way just to say, hey, we love, I mean, even if even if you don't want to come, enjoy the flowers, right? <laughs> I mean, have fun. And so I'm going to ask you to be to be praying about and thinking about who is it that you can invite, right? Is there Are there families around that you can invite? Are there friends that you have that you can invite? We've got some great stuff planned for Easter. It's going to be awesome. And as always, it's straight up gospel, right? There's no more, there's no more, Better, there's no better week uh, to invite somebody to come because they're going to hear about Jesus' death and resurrection and the hope and the life that he brings to us as a result. Now, if you're uh, giving 
if you're going to be inviting, if you're a guy, you're going to invite another single guy, you might want to give him a postcard. <laughs> I mean, that might be better instead of flowers. Depends on the guy, I guess. But that might be a little weird. But if, you, uh, but if you've got, you know, if there's kids, if there's families, if there's girlfriends, if there's whatever, this would be a great way to do that. We're going to have those available in the next couple of weeks uh, out on the table. We're going to make up a couple hundred of them, and I hope that, that we give out all of them. I mean, that would be great. Anything that we have left, we're going to hang on doors around the neighborhood and just invite people to come and celebrate and join us for Easter. So, sound fun? I think it'd be great. Be praying and be really thinking about what's the next step. Who is it that God has specifically put me there to seek and to save more and more? Right? Who, who is there that God wants to, to use you to welcome someone home? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love and we thank you for being a missionary God, a God that comes after us, a God that um, that would go to extreme lengths to see you say the likes of me and the likes of each one of us here. Thanks for being a God that loves us so much that he would search and he would uh, orchestrate our lives, so much of our lives, to bring us back home. Lord, for those of us that maybe are feeling far from home today, right now, God, we just want to stop and pause for just a moment. We just want to crack the door of our hearts. We just want to turn, shift away from this wayward place and we'll shift back to you and we just want to say, Jesus, would you come and bring us home? Would you come and forgive us and make us clean, make us new? We want to be a part of your family. We want to live at home with the Father. And so, God, I pray right now that you would just